Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a whole-of-government approach to cyber isn't enough for a new national defense strategy. We need to bring everybody in to that kind of realistic appreciation to make the strategy real. Getting to yes with the Office of Personnel Management. OPM itself is guilty many times of saying no when agencies ask for things. That's the reason a lot of people call them no PM. And the cloud office at DISA busts a myth for warfighters. I think there's this misconception that applications should only be on-prem or are only on-prem because they're old. Uh, And that's just an oversimplification of the problem, and it's just simply not true. It's Thursday, December 2nd, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Veterans Affairs will jumpstart its electronic health records deployment soon. A new timeline from the agency shows the next facility to get the Genesis system will be Columbus, Ohio on March 5th of next year. Walla Walla, Washington starts with the system March 26th. The timeline includes dates through 2022 and 2023. Two new leaders will oversee the VA's deployment of the EHR system. A deputy chief information officer for EHR and a program executive director for EHR integration will be in charge of the deployment. VA announced Dr. Terry Adiram will be the program executive director. She's acting assistant secretary for health affairs now. VA hasn't filled the deputy CIO job yet. The Army has a vendor under contract for new cyber training services. Coal Engineering won a deal worth nearly a billion dollars through 2029. Coal will provide training event support and architecture development and maintenance for Army cyber training systems. You can read more about all of these headlines and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. A reorg at the Defense Information Systems Agency is turning out to be a shot in the arm for the agency's cloud office. The office's leader, Sharon Woods, will explain in just a few minutes on today's Daily Scoop podcast. The new national defense strategy the Defense Department's working on could include a larger cyber component than it ever has before. The Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy, Mika Oyang, says the NDS will include cyber as a tool. Dan O'Donohue is Senior Vice President for Defense Programs at OWL Cyber Defense. He's former Deputy Commandant of the Marine Corps for Information. Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What do you think the term cyber as a tool means in the context of putting into the national defense strategy. Welcome. Yeah, Francis. Thank you, and, and to your listeners, uh, it's it's fundamental. Uh, I wouldn't isolate cyber. The uh, cyber, you know, for the last decade for sure has been central in it, in its individual importance, and we've seen that. President's executive order, the appointment of Chris Inglis as the uh, first national cyber director, the Solarium Commission report, which is a seminal report talking about the threat that we face. So cyber is important in its own right. It's only one of the domains uh, that we fight with. Uh, They're the traditional domains of air, land, and sea. Then you add in space, cyber, and there's the electromagnetic spectrum as well that is in each of those. And so what I'm sure is going to be in the, uh, uh, will come out in the strategy is not just cyber by itself. It would be very pronounced, uh, both the threat, China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, the usual suspects, with a criminal threat that's aided by those in many cases, make cyber uh, just one of the the arts of warfighting. But it's not alone, and not only is it not alone, our advantage is our ability to combine all those different domains, if you will, air, land, sea, cyberspace, and in fact use cyber 
in space particular and the spectrum to kind of unlock the threats, uh, defense against our land, air, land, and sea uh, 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 power and ability to project. So you see both the threat going into the cyber domain uh, to go after our command and control and nation's critical infrastructure. We, in return, are, will use cyber. But what is different and where our competitive advantage is, is that we can pull it together with all the other ones. We have very practiced and joint operations. And that's where the, the power of cyber will be, not just in its own right, but how it's integrated and get the multiplier effect with all the tools of the trade. I appreciate your analysis because it's a, a very gentle and diplomatic reminder that I think about this wrong, I think. I think about cyber in a vacuum, and I think your analysis is is in is exactly accurate that it's just one of the five tools the five major categories of tools that the department has what has happened in your view inside the building to change that worldview for the folks who are doing this every day where my worldview hasn't changed yeah uh, there's a view of threats being global uh, we used to be on a regional focus we look into indo-pacific we look at europe it's how we fought the wars in the past we'd isolate a theater theater uh, but places, even Korea, but certainly China, uh, have a global implication. It's not just the opportunistic aggressor, right? If you're caught up in a fight with one great power, you could be backdoored by another. It's the fact that the very domains that we fight in have a global span, and certainly cyber and space uh, typify. And so we typify that. And so we're going to have to fight in a more integrated uh, fashion, decentralized for sure. We can't concentrate that the threat systems are too, uh, too lethal and too wide-ranging. And, and we can't be assured that we're going to have the information that will come from a central location. So there's a dispersed aspect of what we're doing, but there's also this idea that it's globally reached. That the span is, is beyond the way we've organized fights in the past. I recall a conversation with a, a, a defense uh, intelligence official, and I'm going to guess it's been 10 or 12 years ago where this was off the air, this was off the record, and that person, I, I asked that person, we're using cyber as an offensive tool, aren't we? And even off the record, that person said to me, well, I can't really address that question while nodding his head in affirmation very <laughs> enthusiastically. It strikes right. me that a, a decade or so on, we're still not widely acknowledging that cyber is an offensive tool, are we? Or is that something that I'm missing? Yeah. Let me just answer that question through the lens of the national defense strategy that we expect here in January. The report to the American people, certainly very focused on China. That'd be a distinguishing aspect of it. One of the ideas that I expect to carry into that report is integrated deterrence. And deterrence has two aspects of it, right? You deny the benefit in cyber, you harden up your critical infrastructure, uh, you make sure your forces and command and control are protected against uh, the, uh, the threat. But there's also a punish aspect of it. Defend for General Nakasone's talked about that. In integration, General Nakasone's done a fantastic job integrating cyber into how we fight. And clearly, uh, we want to make sure that we dissuade and deter uh, opponents uh, from, uh, from attack. And so it's not just protecting yourself, it's having a good offense. Uh, the offense of cyber operations are the nation's, any nation's most secret uh, things. There's a cat and mouse game of positioning yourself in networks, right? Uh, you understand that you do your reconnaissance, uh, you understand where the key terrain is, where the key cyber objectives are, maybe a domain server, uh, things like that. And you're positioned to do, in our case, what would be a counterattack to assuredly an expected attack. Uh, we're under attack every day in cyber, solar winds, and we know we're under attack by state powers 
in a way that we've never seen before. And so there's an offense and defense to every strategy, certainly in this concept of integrated deterrence. And yes, it absolutely applies to cyber. Cyber will be the first rounds, I'm sure, of any fight and then be used throughout every phase of a fight. Uh, both on offense and defense. When the national defense strategy comes out in January, as we expect, as a cyber professional experienced in the national defense community, what will be the first thing that you look for, Dan? And what will you be surprised by if it's either there or not there? I think there there are two things that I would point to. The first is the integration, uh, not just the defense strategy, but the integration across all realms of the government. In fact, even commercial or critical infrastructure so a national defense strategy is important, uh, but it is not necessary, but not sufficient. And there's a whole of government approach that we need in cyber. Uh, if we are able to set up our armed forces on the doorstep of any threat, we win. Our brave young Americans will carry it through. And any opponent, any rational opponent, will try to stop that. They'll attack the will of the American people by going after things that count for us, energy and the like. They'll attack our bases and stations. They'll attack the ports that we go through. They'll attack attack our our logistics. So the first thing I would look for is how it nests within a larger whole-of-government approach, just as, say, China has a whole-of-nation approach, which they consider us. The second point would be the test of the strategy. And I think there was a seminal moment when General Hyten said we failed in a war game against the Chinese. That was a game a year ago in October. And you could look at it two ways. Did that show weakness or did it show strength? I believe it showed strength. The idea that we have a system that we acknowledge these new domains, this new art of warfighting that nobody has a grip on, and we experiment with them realistically. And that war game had a a degree of realism we've never had before. And so I would look at, hey, what's the test of the strategy? Are we going to have games like that? And we're going to learn the lessons. And I'll go back to that first point. Uh, those, Those tests of the strategy have to include whole government. We need to bring everybody in to that kind of realistic appreciation to make the strategy real. Dan O'Donohue, thank you very much for your insight. It's great to have you on the program today. Francis, a, a pleasure. Thank you. You can read more about cyber and the national defense strategy in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Office of Personnel Management's new Talent Surge Executive Playbook will give agencies tools to hire and keep the employees they need. It's out just a short time after the Biden administration listed strengthening the federal workforce as its number one priority in the president's management agenda vision. Jeff Neal is the host of ChiefHRO.com. He's former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What did you see? What jumped out at you? in this new toolkit? Well, the thing that I think is really important in here is, is just putting together all the information about hiring authorities that agencies have to try to encourage agencies to use them, and then really insisting that agencies need to do proper workforce planning. You know, when you look at what happens with federal workforce and federal agencies, they, they're constantly out saying they need you know, more flexibility in hiring, which is true, they do. But when they get it, they go out and do what they've always done. You know, one of the things that I think drives OPM crazy or has driven OPM crazy is that, that they, they give agencies authorities and then agencies don't use them. And then the agency comes back and says, well, why don't you give us authority to do X? And OPM says, well, we gave you that authority five years ago and you never used it. So we took it away. So I, I think, I think getting 
a lot of information in one place and hoping that people will look at it is, is a good thing. Uh, and so I think that's useful. I also think that, that telling people they really need to do workforce planning is also very useful. You know, when you look at how long it takes the federal employee, the federal government to fill a job, and it takes a long time. Um, when you look at how long it takes, if you don't start trying to fill jobs until somebody leaves, you're so far behind the eight ball that you, you never catch up. And if you do good workforce planning and you have a better idea what kind of turnover you can expect, then you can really start hiring efforts long before an actual vacancy needs to be filled. You know, that was something we used to do at DLA, a Defense Logistics Agency, when we we had a, an intern program for, for most of our entry-level jobs. And it, the, the program took two years to complete to, to produce a fully qualified, uh, uh, full performance level employee. And it took probably six months to get people recruited and on board. So we really needed to know two and a half years in advance, roughly what numbers of people and what occupations we needed to hire to be able to have them come out of the pipeline when we needed them. And I think if agencies don't do good workforce planning, they can't effectively run programs like that. So, so I think it's really important. I, I applaud OPM for taking that issue on, and, and I applaud the Biden administration for actually making strengthening the workforce uh, a key pillar of their agenda, because I think that the federal workforce needs a lot of help, and, and I think they've made a, a good start with, with this. I hope there's a lot more to come. Um, I did see that they also you know, have... Um, uh, created a new hiring authority for recent college graduates, two years being recent. And I think that, although it's relatively limited, has some potential to be helpful as well. There's a lot in this uh, talent surge playbook for rebuilding the federal workforce. We have a link to it in today's show notes at the daily scoop podcast.com. Um, one of the challenges that we've talked about ever since you and I have known each other is that time to hire uh, your successor at DHS, Angie Bailey, was on the program a couple of days ago talking about their new cyber talent management system. Is that potentially a model for not just cyber talent, not just DHS, but all kinds of talent all over government? Because I'm paraphrasing and I apologize to Angie if I'm putting words in her mouth, but it sounded like she described this to me in in the formulation stage as essentially kind of tossing aside or, or forgetting about the GS structure in order to go out and get these people and be able to pay them what you have to pay them to compete today? Well, I, I do think the general schedule is, um, is a huge problem. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's too rigid. It's a pay system that was designed in 1949. And, you know, generally, um, we don't, go for 1949 stuff and say, well, this is how we should do business. Because after all, it's good enough for 1949. If it's good enough for Harry Truman, it's good enough for me. So I, I think that the general schedule is a problem. Um, there is some flexibility. There's a fair amount of flexibility to do things differently under the general schedule. And you, know, you can do recruiting bonuses. You can do retention allowances. You can do, uh, you can pay, um, repay student loans for employees. So there are a lot of things that agencies can do that, that frankly, a lot of them don't do. So 
if you've ever gone to a hardware store and you see these toolboxes that have you know, like 400 pieces in the toolbox and people go out and they buy their 400 piece toolbox and then they use a screwdriver, a hammer and a crescent wrench. Yeah, and then they complain they can't get things done. I think the federal government is that way when it comes to, to hiring. The, the government does, even with its antiquated processes, with a lot of antiquated systems, with with um, you know, a lot of issues that they have, and the general schedule being the most antiquated thing they have, uh, there's still a lot of flexibility and a lot of tools that they have that they don't use. And so, uh, you know, my my advice to agencies is to always look at every tool you can possibly use and don't just, and, and HR people are the ones who are guilty of doing this a lot of times, don't just do the things you've done for the last 20 years and expect that they're going to turn out differently this time. They're not. You know, if, you've, if you've advertised a job three times the same way and haven't gotten good applicants, there's almost zero chance that when you advertise it the same way a fourth time, you're going to get good applicants. You know, it, 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 if you had something that's not working, then do something else. And so, so I, I think that you know, DHS has a little more flexibility with cyber jobs than agencies have with most of the other occupations. You know, Congress has, has been more flexible on cyber stuff. OPM has been more flexible on cyber. OMB has been more flexible on cyber because there's this massive threat that, our society faces from from cyber uh, cyber terrorists, cyber criminals, you know, even the, you know, the small time cyber people who are trying to to get you to give you give them your credit card number. So there's people recognize there's a threat and they're willing to be more flexible. They're not so willing to be more flexible when you're hiring a budget analyst or an HR specialist or a contract specialist. So so you know the the model of what DHS is doing with cyber is good, but I don't know if they necessarily could get the same kind of flexibility for the, you know, for the, the more routine jobs. So there's two pages in this playbook, Jeff, the, uh, on recruitment and retention strategies. And some of the things that you've already mentioned in this conversation are in these pages, uh, recruitment incentives, retention incentives, relocation incentives, uh, student loan repayment, uh, critical pay. There's a bunch of them. The, the question, I guess, is obviously the Office of Personnel Management understands the same thing you just said, which is these things exist and people aren't using them even though they exist. What changes that? What does is it changing policy or is it changing human capital leaders who won't do these things, waiting for them to move on to other situations? Because if these capabilities exist and people aren't using them, then I mean, I wonder at what point you decide what has to change. Well, I think it starts with OPM. You know, one of the ones you mentioned was critical pay. And, you know, there are some, some pretty substantial limits on critical pay, but I know back when I was at DHS, we were trying to get critical pay approved for somebody. We found out that OPM had approved something like three requests for critical pay since the authority had been created years earlier. Um, so, and, and OPM was was very hesitant to, to actually approve it. And it took uh, the OPM director at the time personally getting involved to get it approved. So, so OPM itself is guilty many times of saying no when agencies ask for things. That's the reason a lot of people call them no PM. 
So, so OPM needs to make absolutely certain that they're being as flexible as they possibly can. I think in recent months, they've been, they've been doing much better with that. Next thing they need to do is to start measuring the use of a lot of the flexibilities. You know, it's, it's a very good start to say to an agency, here are the 97 flexibilities you have. The next thing should be getting agencies to report, uh, and, you, and they have systems that can produce a lot of the data, so you don't, it's not that hard to, to do reporting on some of these things. Get them to report on how much of this stuff they're doing. How many recruiting bonuses did they pay? How many retention allowances are they paying? How many uh, employees are they repaying student loans for? And then report that and say, okay, you know, kind of interesting, you know, the Department of Education doesn't do so-and-so or the Department of Health and Human Services is, you know, is the leader in the government in doing and using this flexibility, this authority. And if you start reporting on that, then it draws attention to it. And if you draw attention to it, if it's drawing negative attention, then the leaders of agencies will want to fix it because they don't want negative attention. So, so you, you shine a light on how people are using things like this. And the people who are using them effectively will be very happy and they'll be encouraged to continue using them effectively. And the people who are doing what they've been doing since 1949 might be shamed into doing something different. So, and there's nothing wrong with, with using metrics to, to, to encourage and incentivize the kind of behavior that you're looking for. If they never report on it, then a lot of agencies that aren't using the, the pay authorities, for example, never will. They'll just complain about not getting the kind of people they want. Sounds like evidence-based, data-driven decision-making, and I think that's also in the president's management agenda. It's great to see you, Jeff. Thanks for coming on the program. Good to see you, too. You can read more about the Talent Surge Executive Playbook in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, the road ahead for the new acquisition leader at the Pentagon, and the president's management agenda hits the big time. Those topics and more on Friday's show, that Daily Scoop Podcast, debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. A reorganization at the Defense Information Systems Agency is turning out to be a shot in the arm for that agency's cloud office. The director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, says one goal of the reorg is to simplify DISA's structure. Sharon Woods is director of the Hosting and Compute Center at the Defense Information Systems Agency. In this highlight from the new episode of the Let's Talk About IT podcast, she tells the host, Billy Mitchell, in her portfolio, the reorg has done some interesting things. The Hosting and Compute Center pulls together, one, um, DISA's data center footprint. So all of the data centers and the, the people that come along with that. Um, that is a global footprint. Um, it's you know 10 active data centers, uh, some really incredible expertise there. And then there's the Cloud Computing Program Office. Um, and you know that's a smaller cadre of people um, a relatively strong military presence, very much focused on commercial cloud, commercial cloud technologies. And then it also brought together the group within DISA um, that uh, was managing the mill cloud uh, program, the, uh, the BCAPs um, in terms of you know, security and, and transport for commercial cloud. And it pulled it all together. 
So from a mission standpoint for the hosting and compute center, our vision is empowering the warfighter to execute at the speed of, of mission. And thinking about hosting and compute in terms of unified hosting and compute. So rather than the conversation being very binary and zero sum game where it's, well, do I do data centers or do I do cloud? Right. It, it, the technology is not that simple and the department's mission has a lot of complexity. Um, and so when you look at it, there's this whole space in between of hybrid cloud of both environments and, you know, modernizing the data centers uh, to have different kinds of capabilities that are compatible with a hybrid type framework is super critical, as well as following best practices within cloud environments and DevSecOps and these things. Um, so that you're doing things in a standard-based way. So the idea is it's unified hosting and compute across a spectrum that also addresses cloud outside the United States, that addresses all classification levels, that addresses where our warfighters operate, which oftentimes there's you know, terrible communications. And so um, bringing it all together rather than uh, two groups of people sort of looking at each other across the river uh, it's it's one group of people now, and that's how we're approaching the problem set and the reorganization, I think, really positioned us to reimagine what that can be. Um, and I think it's going to be really powerful going forward. So that's very interesting. And I, I, I appreciate the way you sort of have explained that, because it 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 seems like the restructuring in, in a way, at least of your office, matches the sort of evolving thought around cloud in the department writ large, that it's not just cloud versus data center, it's, it's, it's a hybrid model. Um, so tell me about that sort of, uh, you know, for a while we've heard about uh, everybody needs to move to the cloud, but now what we're hearing is this hybrid multi-cloud uh, evolution towards that where it, it, some things fit for some things and then maybe the cloud's good for that, but it's never a one size fits all kind of thing. Sure. So, and, and I think a really good way to think about it is to overlay um, Secretary Austin's uh, JADC2 initiative, right? So that's the initiative to really look at all of our different command and control systems, right? The C2 systems. And rather than that data and the way that that data is collected and processed and utilized, um, rather than it happening in these silos, uh, to really begin looking at um, you know, data aggregation or scraping data, looking at kind of more interoperability and a standards-based way of how do you take advantage um, of all of these different C2 systems and the data collection. And, and it's right, I mean, that's in space, it's terrestrial, it's, it's all these things, it's in C, and having it be more than the sum of its parts. And so uh, when you think about it that way, uh, when we did the... Um, uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, right, and, and the refugee operation, uh, CCPO at the time was involved uh, working with the Air Mobility Command and Transcom on a really interesting um, problem set that was really profound for the mission and I think illustrates what hybrid cloud um, can really look like and what that means. And in this case, it actually involved a C2 system. So there was a on-prem C2 system. Uh, and that system is very sensitive. Um, it's collecting data that because of the different security rules, it may always stay on-prem, right? On-prem isn't just about my applications too old to ever go in the cloud. There are very legitimate reasons, uh, whether it's for resiliency or because of the sensitivity of the data that 
the, the application, the workload needs to stay on-prem. Um, but then uh, there was this need to have a common operating picture of real time being able to track you know, over 300 aircraft and the cargo and number of people um, that were in each of those aircraft. The level of analytics and compute that you need for that is very hard to achieve and scale when we had you know, hours notice that this needed to happen on-prem. And so uh, CCPO had previously worked um, with uh, the Air Mobility Command to use infrastructure as code, and I'll sort of push that off to the side for a moment, but a cloud native application using platform as a service uh, to visualize the, the data that was coming from the C2 system. And there's kind of this translation piece in between. So no kidding, real time being used for operations was in fact a, a really great use case of hybrid cloud. And in this case, it's a C2 system that was on-prem, which um, I think is directly relevant to the JAD C2 initiative. Because imagine if that C2 system were interoperable with other C2 systems, and now you're collecting more than just the aircraft data, right? You're overlaying other data. Um, and so, uh, so I think that's an example where these are very modern use cases. And I think there's this misconception that applications should only be on-prem or are only on-prem because they're old. Uh, and that's just an oversimplification of the problem. And it's just simply not true. And I think this very modern use case that um, provided super critical information for the department really illustrates uh, exactly what the hack is trying to push forward of a hybrid you know, kind of cloud mentality where it's a spectrum of hosting and compute. It's, just, it's not just one or the other. And that's a, that's a fascinating example. And I think a, a very appropriate one to share. So I appreciate that. And I, I do have to ask, um, HACK, is that the, the way we're pronouncing the acronym? Because I couldn't, I couldn't think if, if, if it was HC2 or HCC or HACK, because there's the and in there. So HACK is what we're calling it. It is. And we really, there's, there's a whole story behind that. So we really put a lot of thought into it. Um, and if you look back, right, hackers, which is what we call ourselves, hackers, yeah. Um, if you look back, hackers were really originally testers and, and hackers are all about, um, and even if you think about life hacks, right? It's just about solving problems um, and finding interesting pathways in really creative ways. And so I think as a group, um, rather than we're engineers or we're systems administrators or we're, we're hackers, we're just trying to solve problems that really matter for the mission of national defense. And so I think just as an identity, uh, we're the hack, uh, we're DISA's hackers, uh, and, and we're here to do some really cool things. Sharon Woods, Director of the Hosting and Compute Center at the Defense Information Systems Agency. That's a highlight of the new episode of the Let's Talk About IT podcast with Billy Mitchell. You can listen to the whole episode and subscribe to Billy's podcast in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Delivering on the president's management agenda and success for the new acquisition leader at the Pentagon. Those and more on Friday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.